0: Hello, Basement Programmers, and welcome. This is the Basement Programmer Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Moore. The opinions expressed in the Basement Programmer Podcast are those of myself and any guests that I may have, and are not necessarily those of our employers or organizations we may be associated with. Feedback on the Basement Programmer Podcast, including suggestions on things you'd like to hear about, can be emailed to me at tom at basementprogrammer.com. And I'm always on the lookout for people who would like to come on the podcast and talk about anything technology related, so drop me a line. And now for this episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the April episode of the Basement Programmer podcast. This is Tom, your host, and this month, I'm joined by my colleague and fellow serverless.net enthusiast, James Easton. James, uh, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me on. I'm excited for this conversation. Looking forward to it. Me too. So James, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Um, so I'm James Eastham. I'm a senior cloud architect here at AWS based in the UK. And so I actually work in the professional services part of AWS. So I get really hands on actually helping customers build things with AWS. So that's kind of my day job. I always like to say by night, the cape I wear is <laughs> the whole.net serverless That's kind of my real area of interest, you know, building things with .NET on serverless technologies and helping people upskill because there's kind of some shifts that you need to have in your thinking when you start building really serverless native applications.
0: Cool, so how long have you been using .NET? Oh gosh, I think framework three, maybe three, five,
1: possibly. So I wasn't quite a framework one developer, but I've been around for a little while. So I started <laughs> off, started off um in frontline front support. I think this is maybe a typical route into tech, and then quickly realized supporting the system in a GUI that teaching myself SQL would be an interesting way to help debug things easier. Then I learned SQL and thought, actually, this.NET thing seems kind of interesting. This was Microsoft SQL Server, I add, but then thought this whole.NET thing seems interesting. Imagine how much more useful I could be if I knew .NET, and then taught myself dotnet and then the kind of snowball <laughs> effect from there <laughs> Um, you know a lot of the work I've done with dotnet is kind of building integrations around systems so I did a lot of work with OCR technologies technologies installed on Windows servers that need to integrate with a manner of different things Windows services console apps task schedulers, you name it it's been there done it <laughs>
0: So I too actually got my start doing frontline support, but I, in my case, it was for an antivirus company. So. Okay. Yeah. I think you learn an awful lot in frontline support about
1: both dealing with customers, interacting with customers, handling problems. I think it's a real, I, I recommend it to anyone looking to get into tech is have a go at frontline support because it teaches you a lot.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So what is it about, what is it about serverless that you really like? Um, There's a few things
1: i think so you know there's the kind of cost benefits you pay for what you use lack of operational overhead patching you know i don't imagine you liked it as much as i did but installing patches on servers like nobody wants to do that um so they're some of the high level things but i think actually my favorite thing about serverless is developer velocity like just how quickly you can get things out into the world for people to use. So I've been doing some work with with Kubernetes recently, you know, the naughty word, Um, and there's just like so much I had to do before you could even run a line of code. Like there's the networking, there's the clusters, there's all this stuff you've got to think about. And then doing that after having worked with serverless, the speed you can just get things out and get things in front of customers and delivering value is just incredible. With serverless, you focus on your business value deploy that and let companies like AWS worry about the rest. So that's by far my favorite thing. Just get things out quickly, get them in front of people, get them using them
0: as well as all the other benefits, cost benefits, et cetera. So, so you don't like the idea of patching a server and then immediately having it fall over because of some mm-hmm. incompatibility? I mean,
1: mm-hmm. That's fine. No. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I think, my, I think my, my, my least favorite memory of working with servers is um, I once logged into a server, did some stuff Thursday evening hit shut down thinking I was shutting down my laptop. <laughs> Lo and behold, I was shutting down a production server. So um yeah. I don't have good memories of doing things on servers.
0: Oh dear. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> oh dear indeed. <laughs> so we're here today really to talk about event driven architecture. So what is it about what does that really mean when we talk about event driven? I think
1: an interesting place to start with event driven architectures architecture is actually just to like, define what an event is, right? What What is an event? And an event is simply a signal that there's been a state, a change of state in a system. Events are typically immutable and they're always in the past tense. Like they have happened. They can't be changed. So there's a really nice analogy I've got from one of my from one of my colleagues about a light switch, you know, something we all do every day. You turn on a light. That's a light switched on event. You can't unswitched on, an, an, on a light, right? <laughs> the way you turn off a light is the light switched off event, light goes off. So they're completely immutable. And I think one thing I'll always add when I talk about event driven architecture is that like, this isn't using events in systems. Isn't a new thing, right? Events have been in systems, in programming, in systems design for an awful long time. So it's not, it's not a new thing, but I think that definition of what an event is is, is a really important understanding to have when you first get into event driven architecture.
0: Now, I, I got to say, my kids probably wouldn't understand the concept of the event of the lights turn off event. <laughs> <laughs> that never happens around here. <laughs> <laughs> Only when dad goes and shuts them yeah. off, so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, it's kind of like in Windows programming, back when, you know, you click a button and something happens. Is that where we're kind of going with this? Um, yes and no. So I think
1: this might be a little bit of semantics, but I'd actually consider that an event based system. So you're using events to trigger functionality in your system and it you know helps you build loosely coupled things in Windows programming that like you've got your UI layer, you've got your business logic layer and you've got these events that are kind of gluing things together. But I think there's a couple of key differences when we think about event driven architectures as we're talking about in this conversation and the first is i think the most important is that events are the first class citizens of your application events drive everything and these events are business events i think that's one of the most important things with event different architectures these events are relevant to your business so with your windows programming example your events are going to be things like you know submit button clicked for example mm-hmm. Whereas event-driven architecture, your events are things like order created, order confirmed, order delete, deleted, delivered, etc. These are the kinds of events we're talking about in event driven an architecture, not which is maybe slightly different to how events were maybe viewed in more traditional programming.
0: So it's really um, tied
1: down to business value. Yeah, so. exactly. Everything is about the, the, the business context. And I think the, the second thing I suppose, which may be slightly different to, to more traditional event Windows programming type is, is the asynchronous nature of event driven architecture. So again, if we stick with this Windows, you know, GUI example, when I hit a button in a UI, that raises the button-clicked event. But I'm expecting some kind of synchronous response, right? It might not be synchronous like under the hood, but I'm expecting a response that's kind mm-hmm. of synchronous. Whereas event driven systems are are fundamentally asynchronous, like something happens in my system that causes a change of state, and I publish a business event, order created. And I'm not expecting anything to happen off the back of that. I'm just notifying the world that this thing has happened and other components of my system, other pieces of the architecture might choose to react to that. They might choose to completely ignore it. Some systems might even be interested in like a subset of the events. So maybe your loyalty service is interested in order confirmed events, but only if the value is over a hundred dollars for example. So I think there are two big differences I see with more, you know, how events have been used in systems in the past, as opposed to event-driven architecture in the way we talk about it today. And that, you know, fits really nicely with things like Lambda and serverless. We've got these events, these systems that are only reacting to events when they're interested in them. And then we've got Lambda, which is completely event driven, compute events or what source Lambda which is reactive. So these, these, these different concepts kind of play really nicely together as we start to build out systems.
0: So why would a customer want to do any of this? It, it sounds like it's you know an earth shattering change.
1: <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's a few reasons actually, um, I'll put quite a bit of thought into this and you know, why when I, when I give conference talks and things like that, I always like to start at the why. So I'm really glad you've asked this question up front. And I think my favorite reason about the why is one that I don't often hear talked about all that much. And that's, about the language of the application. So, you know, with, with systems design, we've had domain driven design, I think since 2003, I think the book was published, the big blue book and part of domain driven design is this idea of ubiquitous language, which is using the same language in the business as you would use in your application code. And then it makes that conversation really easy between the business experts, the domain experts and the developers, because you're all speaking the same language. And I think when you start building out event driven architectures and make events the core of your system, it brings that ubiquitous language to the integrations, the interactions between parts of your system. Like these integrations are now expressed in plain English that everyone can understand. Maybe maybe unless it's my English, then maybe not quite as easy to understand with my accent, but most people would understand. Um you know, it no longer becomes a conversation then about service A talking to service B over HTTP. It's a conversation phrased around, you know, what would happen, Mr. Business Expert, when an order is confirmed, for example, so we're talking about things, you know, the, the integrations are in a language that everybody understands them. And I think there's a, the, the other really interesting reason to start looking at event driven architectures is around coupling, you know, coupling mm-hmm. is one of the biggest challenges in, in systems design. And I think there's a spectrum of coupling you know, from from tight coupling and tight coupling would be something like a HTTP API call, for example. And if we consider the fallacies of distributed computing, which makes me sound very intelligent when I say that, but actually it's something it's, <laughs> it's somebody else thought of. But this was an idea back from, from a, a group of folks at uh, some microsystems in the mid to late 90s. And the fallacies are some false assumptions programmers new to distributed computing make. So things like the network is reliable. Latency is zero. Bandwidth is infinite. The network is secure. <laughs> yeah. People always laugh when I, read, when I read some of them out. Um, but, you know, if you've got a really tightly coupled system over HTTP, and I think you can fairly say that anything you're building in the cloud is technically a distributed system, that becomes really tricky because then you're over a network that brings into so- all sorts of potential issues with HTTP.
0: I sorry, I, I laugh because as you know, when I was full time as a developer, you know something would go wrong in your app, and you'd say, "Oh, it's the network's problem." <laughs> so,
1: <laughs>
0: yep. Always
1: well, first place to check is it the network? Is it DNS? Oh, to actually a problem. What? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean the other thing with tight coupling, like every time you want to add a new integration or a new piece of functionality to your system, it means a code change everywhere. Like we'll stick with this e-commerce example because it's just an easy one to, to think about. But let's say you want to add a membership service to your e-commerce system. Okay, now your membership system needs to communicate with my order system and maybe my delivery system, which means them systems all need to know where each other are and that the network's there and that the DNS names are right and they re- resolve to the right location. Like. This then leads to that massive, you know, we've all seen the big webs of, I'm I'm guessing with my hands that people can see me, (laughs) leads to these big webs of service integrations that people seem to be really proud of that look really, really complicated if you ask me, but that, you know, that tight coupling leads to that doing things over HTTP. The other end of the spectrum, you've got no coupling, which, Mm -hmm. you know, a component exists without communicating with anything else in the world, which I don't imagine there's an awful lot of systems doing that, Tom, but maybe you know of some, but I'd, I'd, I'd love to know what value they add if they're integrating with nothing at all. <laughs> I
0: was going to say, it doesn't sound like a particularly useful system. So, no, yeah. no. So, I mean, a, a level up
1: from no coupling is is what we call loose coupling, like a loosely coupled system. Um, and the there's a quote I really like around coupling. It's from Gregor, Gregor Hoppe who wrote the Enterprise Integration Patterns book, if you aren't familiar, but it's an awesome book um, and the quote is the amount of coupling required depends on the level of control you have over the endpoints. So, you know, if you're me and you were working on the same scene, Tom, and we own four different microservices, coupling them together more tightly isn't potentially that big of a deal because we we own the release cycles, we own the DNS, we own the SLAs, we own all this stuff. But once you start integrating with other things, whether that be third parties, whether that be other, other components of, you know, within your company, you want to try and reduce that coupling as much as possible. How does that relate to event-driven architecture? You might ask (laughs) because if you're designing your system in an event-driven way, that forces you to think about your system in these immutable business events, which therefore then naturally forces you to think more asynchronously thinking event first which then naturally leads you to be more loosely coupled in your system because you're thinking about things asynchronously
0: cool well i will say this if anybody's listening to the podcast and they have a use for a zero coupled system please get in touch with me james and i would love to talk to you we really really (laughs) would we really really would (laughs) and i mean even even you know even with like a loosely coupled event
1: driven system you still do have some elements of coupling in places. So things yeah. like your schemas of your events, right? Like that's one of the potential challenges that people run into when they start doing event driven systems, because your schema is almost your point of coupling, like someone consumes your event, and they expect it to be in a specific format if you massively change your schema all of a sudden. Although, you, you know, you don't care about people who are consuming your events, you kind of need to a little bit because people <laughs> need to work with these events and do things with these events. So just changing them every other day is, is difficult. So there's a lot of really good content that that David Boyne, one of the, the serverless developer advocates here at AWS, has got around schema management and things like that. I'm sure we can grab some links to put in the show notes, Tom. And um, David's got some really good talks about that.
0: So yeah, I'm listening to you talk about this and I'm thinking back to when I started and uh, you know, obviously people can't see that I've got a lot more gray hair than James does. <laughs> um, I started off as a systems programmer. We do things like you know Windows services. So you'd have an app that just sits there and then it waits and then it checks a directory to see if a bunch of files have come along and it you know, does some work and then it goes to sleep for a while. And mm-hmm. how does that model change when we start talking about event-driven architecture?
1: so one of the most important things in that windows service example you're talking about there you know everything that needs to happen to that file is likely happening in a single process you know that's one process sat there going to sleep waking up and that makes any integrations or any any patterns or anything like that quite easy because it's all in a single process but once you start thinking about event driven architectures and serverless what you end up with is actually all these little discrete pieces of functionality I guess you're in with my hands again, of course, sorry everybody um <laughs> all these little discrete pieces of functionality um that that are all integrating with each other. so I think the biggest difference I see with the move from what you've described to more serverless applications is is the integrations between things so one you know one of my mentors he's once said to me, when you do an architecture diagram, it's not the boxes you need to worry about, it's the lines and that becomes <laughs> even more important in event driven architectures because everything's asynchronous because everything is happening you know things could be hooked into things and people could start listening to events it can become quite hard to rationalize about the individual components themselves and i think that's where patterns and talking about different patterns becomes really really important when you're thinking about event driven architectures so you know, again, going back to your Windows service example, everything's written in .NET, and we have a language around programming in .NET. You know, you've got the Gang of Four, you've got builders patterns, mediator patterns, factory patterns. But then, if I was to say to you, Tom, you know, I want to integrate this system and this system in an asynchronous way, would you jump straight into services? Because I think I would It'd jump straight into SQS, SNS, EventBridge, for example.
0: And I, th- oh. It's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, the other thing that jumps out at me at this conversation is we used to love our sleep statements and you haven't mentioned sleep once.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these things go to sleep by themselves. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's one of the beauties. You know, if we go back to the, the, the opening question around what I like about serverless, that's one of the absolute beauties. Like using something like Lambda processing a file, your Lambda function contains only your business logic gets the file event, reads the file from, say, S3, finishes its work and then just automatically goes to sleep. And while it's sleeping, you're not paying for anything. With your Windows service example, when your service isn't doing anything, you're still paying for the server that it's running on, just in case something might happen. You're still paying for the people time of maintaining that server and managing that server, like these kind of costs that I think people don't think about sometimes. So, yeah, it it, it really, when this, this reactive programming example really helps with 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 situations like that where you've got these kind of sleep and wait type situations and again this is where i think that patterns are, are, are really important when we talk about this so you know that example i've just paused i want to communicate between two systems in an asynchronous way okay so if we think about aws services you might go sqs sns event bridge etc and then maybe get really confused about which one to pick <laughs> whereas when i say think about the integrations between your components. I think we should start asking the questions of what type of communication do we want between our components? So do we want like a a message channel where you have a separate channel for each type of message? Do we want publish subscribe where you just publish your event and infinite number of people can listen to it? Or do we want like a point to point channel where every message is consumed by only one receiver? Like I think because these integrations become so important, when you're building event-driven systems, exploring them integrations a bit more deeply becomes really important because otherwise you'll just default to to HTTP and then everything's that big web of mess over a network again. So I think they're the kind of things you need to be thinking about when you're moving from maybe non-event-driven, non-serverless to serverless. And then the the services naturally start to fall out at that point. You You want a message channel where you've got a separate channel for each type of message, SNS. Topics publish, subscribe lots of receivers, event bridge potentially, potentially SNS, but I'm we'll not getting to that. <laughs> um, and you know, you want point to point and you know, point to point one receiver, maybe SQS and something a bit more point to point. So, I think coming from that non event driven, non serverless background into a event driven serverless background, not that people didn't used to think about integrations and how things talk to each other, but it becomes really important because you've got these really small pieces of functionality that are all working together to to, to create a whole or a bigger thing.
0: Well, you, you actually already answered, i uh, kind of answered my, ne- my next question, which is going to be, you know, if we, if we have taken this effort to move our applications to event driven architecture, mm-hmm. how do we figure out just how to do all these connections? Because as you mentioned, there's like, a whole bunch of different options here um and how you can get the multiple different event handlers or, or event processors yeah. to do stuff so
1: yeah this is this is a this is a challenge I, I I speak to customers about a lot especially you know in the .NET world maybe the java world as well these long lived languages that have been around for 20 30 years you, you're going to have some older legacy stuff but then you also might want to start using some of these newer serverless paradigms and probably still communicate between the two systems and you know lambda will scale up to a thousand concurrent executions by default can your old windows 2012 server handle that kind of load maybe not so yeah it is a real challenge when you when you have legacy stuff around but there are there are different patterns you can use to start start to work with this and you know you probably want to start with something queue based if you've got something legacy integrating with something more scalable and more modern because a queue gives you that ability to control the load that's hitting your old system you can have that like Mm -hmm. a buffer if you will between your old system and your new system and then alongside that that queue you might use something like an adapter pattern or a channel adapter pattern and a channel adapter again is another pattern described in the the enterprise integration patterns book but the channel adapter is useful when you're connecting a system that isn't built with messaging in mind to a system that is, which is kind of what we're talking about, some legacy old thing talking to a new serverless system. And let's, you know, let's think about this with, you know, a .NET and and an AWS um, frame around this. Let's say we've got an old .NET framework API running on a Windows server and we've got a lot of modern .NET 6 um, stuff running in the cloud. So what we might do is put Maybe a SQS queue in the middle, and then maybe a Lambda function next to that SQS queue. And the SQS queue and the Lambda function will be owned by the the legacy system, if you will. Um, and then what that enables you to do is define the types of messages that you want to land in the queue. So let's say you're interested in order confirmed events; they land in your queue, and then you can use that Lambda function connected to the queue to both control the load on your system, because there's various little knobs you can tweak in the Lambda and SQS integration to kind of control how fast messages are pulled off the queue. And then you can use that Lambda function to act as, act as like the translation layer or the proxy layer to take that event, translate that into maybe a HTTP request to then fire off to your .NET Framework web API running on a Windows server. You know, you can attach your Lambda functions to a VPC. So then that gives you that ability to route into the network. And then you can even do the same on the way back out, you know, that HTTP server might return a response. And then you can use that same Lambda function to handle the response and, you know, maybe even publish an event, who knows. So, you know, there's patterns you can put in place to kind of work with these legacy systems alongside your more modern, more cloud native systems. And I think that's actually a really interesting pattern. You know, if you've got some legacy CRM system that doesn't actually differentiate your business from any of your competitors? Do you want to invest, you know, however many man hours in into um, upgrading that or, you know, modernizing that? Or actually, could you just leave it where it is and then put some time into building a nice integration that works with it? Everything doesn't
0: necessarily need to be modernized if it's not adding value to your customers, potentially. Right. So you've talked quite a bit about, you know, different ways and, and architecture and things like that, um, which for somebody who isn't familiar with it might be a little bit difficult. Do you have any tips on ways that you can kind of make life easier for the .NET developer who wants to move into event driven architecture and serverless, all this cool Mm -hmm. stuff, but maybe isn't quite there yet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's, a bunch of different best practices and some tooling that AWS has built to really, really help um, .NET developers get started. Um, So the first is probably um, Lambda power tools for .NET. And this, this went GA, I think three weeks ago, I think four weeks ago. So it's quite new, Um, but the power tools suite is a set of um, libraries across all the different runtimes that make things easier. To develop in Lambda, um, so the initial release of the .NET Power Tools supports logging, metrics, and traces, and it abstracts away a lot of the complexities that might come with that. So the logging utility, for example, supports structured logging out of the box. So you just do, you know, logger.log Log information, your log message, and when that actually gets written out to CloudWatch to the logs, it will be structured. It'll have a structure. It'll have the service name. It'll have the environment name, you can automatically log the incoming event. Um, the metrics utility in um, it uses what's called the embedded metric format, which is a way to write a log message to cloud watch and then cloud watch will read that log message in a specific format and actually create metrics off the back of that, which saves you a whole bunch of cost in making calls to the metrics API endpoint. So power tools is really cool for a um, from like a observability perspective. And then with some of the other runtimes that are a bit further ahead than dotnet, they support things like item potency. So managing item potency for you. And um, they support things like parameters so you can configure it and just you know parameter dot get parameter and it'll set up that connection to systems manager or secrets manager or whatever. So that's going to grow. And if people are really interested in what they'd like to see in power tools, what would be useful then? this is all open source it's all on github you know raise issues and and the team will be happy to to get back and contribute on that um another really useful tool is the lambda annotations framework and what the lambda annotations framework does is makes it really simple to build lambda functions It, it abstracts away some of the boilerplate code that you might get when you when you're building um, Lambda functions. So if we think about APIs as a as a place to start, like when you're building an API in .NET in ASP.NET, a lot of it is like attribute based. You know, you add an attribute to your method that says this is going to be a HTTP GET and this is the route, and then your actual method parameters are your actual objects. Let's say it's a post request, not a get request. And ASP.NET handles all that JSON serialization and DC realization and all of that that stuff for you. Whereas when you first start building Lambda functions in .NET, you'll find if you're building APIs that you've got to do a lot of that boilerplate yourself. Like there's a really great um, example on the launch blog of a API endpoint that adds two numbers together, x and y, and there's like I think 30 lines of code, and like one line is x plus y. <laughs> that's it. That's all it would be, and you've got all <laughs> boilerplate um, going on around it. So what annotations framework does is it moves towards this more attribute based model. So you can add an attribute to your method in .NET and the attribute is lambda function is the name of the attribute. And what will happen at compile time is that um, the compiler will use source generators to generate all of that boilerplate code. So you add an attribute to your method of lambda function. You add a second attribute of HTTP post in your method. You have a from body attribute and you have you know your object and the name of your variable and annotations framework will at compile time generate all of that boilerplate to do the json serialization and DC serialization to check that the path parameters exist you know all the things that asp.net does for us that we're really used to and really love as.net developers and brings that to lambda as well so they're just two really right. really useful tools you can use to get started um if you're, if you're working with.net and lambda
0: really interesting when you're talking about especially the power tools because yeah again stepping back into the idea of a windows um yeah like like a windows systems programming you didn't have to worry about things like metrics and or as much because everything was right there you got one process so yeah i mean i think the other thing that's really interesting with power tools as well you know
1: if if you know prior to power tools if you wanted to do structured login for example um, you'd need to be using something like Serilog or some third-party library to do that structured logging. Um, and one of the ways to, to use Lambda in its, in its optimal way is to minimise your dependencies as much as possible. You want as few, keep your bundle size small, and that will start to help with code starts. So what Power Tools does is it, it builds that structured logging kind of like on the fly, if you will. So it doesn't use, you know, Power Tools doesn't use Serilog, so you're therefore introducing two dependencies. It's all done kind of in line. So it, it it helps you minimize the the total number of dependencies that you're going to have because you've got this one set of libraries that can do both logging metrics and traces and do it all for you.
0: Now you just mentioned something uh called cold starts. Can you talk a little um, bit about what that is? We can. For anybody who isn't familiar with it.
1: Yes. So
0: the way that um
1: Lambda works, so we've already said that you know Lambda is reactive you only pay for what you use and you know that that's to the to the milliseconds so a cold start is what happens is when a new request comes into your system for a function that might not be ready to receive it just yet so what actually happens under the hood is every request that comes into lambda comes into a worker service or a front-end service and that service is going to look to see if there is an existing execution environment Available for that specific version of your Lambda function. Mm-hmm. So it'll have a look around across the fleet of all these of all these um, bare metal machines, and it will say, "Is there any execution environments? No, there isn't." So at that point, Lambda then needs to create an execution ex- environment for to handle that request. So that includes starting up um, a micro VM, downloading your function code from from S3, or if you're using containers, pulling that from a container repo, um, setting up the runtime. And then at that point, that execution environment is now ready to receive a request. So that's what's known as a cold start. It's that time taken for this execution environment to become available. Now, once that execution environment's available, it can then be used again. So they they hang around for a non-SLA'd amount of time, if that makes any sense. Um, So, you know, they'll hang around for a little bit. If you don't have any usage on your function for a little while, that execution environment will will get torn down. Now, an important thing to remember with execution environments is that each environment will only ever process one request at any one time. So if you've got two requests into your Lambda function at exactly the same time, you're pretty likely to get two separate cold starts, but then remember then you've got two warm execution environments, both sat there available, ready to process things. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting with cold starts because as a developer, building against lambda when you're in your development life cycle you know you make a change you publish it you're going to see a cold start every single time you publish a new version of your function and i know when i first started lambda using Lambda, i was like oh, damn it these code starts are killing me man <laughs> every single time i'm getting a cold start but actually once you put your function under any kind of you know steady load let's say you know you've got 10 requests a second and it's an api you're going to have a consistent set of execution environments available pretty much all the time. So the amount of cold starts you, you actually see is potentially relatively low. So I've actually got some, if I can remember the numbers, right, but there's a repository on GitHub where we do all our benchmarking for the different.net runtimes mm-hmm. and the different ways of running.net. And for a conference talk I gave a few weeks ago, I actually reran um, the benchmarks to kind of look at the percentage of warm starts versus cold starts. So, the the the, load, the the benchmarking is done. We run a hundred requests a second for ten minutes, and mm-hmm. the numbers we ended up with were there was a hundred and these might be slightly wrong, so don't quote me on these. But there were, there was roughly a hundred and fifty six thousand warm invokes. Okay. Okay. There was about five hundred cold starts, you know, Additionally, on top of that, sorry. So that's a total of what? One hundred and let's say one hundred and fifty thousand five hundred invokes in total. Five hundred of them were cold starts. So you know, you put Lambda under load, you're gonna get less code starts. It's kind of a really paradoxical way of thinking about I think Like, you know, I think back to when I was building APIs on servers. It's like, no, don't put it under load; it'll break. Whereas (laughs) Lambda's kind of a little bit of the opposite in some respects. So um, yeah, the the, the thing with code starts is that always, I always say to people and and, customers, run some. If you know the load, or if you can like predict what you think the load might be, like run the function under load before you jump to the conclusion that cold starts are going to be a problem. And cold starts might be a problem in some cases. So I've worked on a system in the past where we needed double-digit millisecond latency with incredibly spiky workloads. Like some weeks there'd be ten requests, some weeks there might be one request, some weeks there'd be a hundred requests. Unless you're getting into some of the things like like provision concurrency, and we can talk about provision concurrency as well if you want Tom, but unless you're getting into things like that, that's really difficult to do with Lambda because you know you know even across any runtime, even you know the fastest runtimes like Go, and Rust, maybe not Rust but Go, you're still talking of hundreds of millisecond cold start. So you know that there are scenarios where Lambda might not fit, and then you can start to look at other other programming models.
0: Well maybe we can come back into another episode just on managing cold starts and things like that <laughs> yeah I, I think yeah. that could probably go for quite a while in and of itself yeah i mean and, and if we relate this back to event driven architecture um you
1: know, like although lambda is you know fundamentally event based compute like lambda's functions are triggered by an event of some kind that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be using um Lambda functions to be doing event-driven architectures. So there's a really awesome um, blog, I think, on the compute blog that that Emily Shea, one of um, our colleagues, wrote about event-driven architectures with, I think it was ECS. It might have been Kubernetes, but one of the container orchestrators and how you can still use EventBridge and SNS and all these really cool native integration, native services on AWS, but actually using container-based compute. So the two kind of get conflated sometimes that you have to be doing Lambda to do event-driven architecture and you don't, you can use a mix of both. It's just a tool in the toolkit, like everything else.
0: Okay. So you've got me convinced everything should be event-driven architecture. Is that the case? Uh,
1: Maybe (laughs) it is an interesting question. You know, and I think, what I've just said, then, kind of, you know, event-driven architecture, can you know, it's a, it's a tool in the toolbox, right? Like everything doesn't have to be event-driven, or everything doesn't have to be service-oriented and microservices. Like it's probably a mishmash of, of things that you end up with. And I think some of the scenarios I can think of where you might not want to do event-driven architecture, I guess, I think that's kind of what you're trying to lead me to, Tom. <laughs> is you know, <laughs> if you're building something like something incredibly simple, like a sh- stupidly simple feature for your, your a new service for your business, like. Adding all of this additional overhead, you know, everything's asynchronous, you've got um, integrations to worry about. You might actually be better just building a more, you know, modular monolith, for example, and run it in a container. Like if it's just stupidly simple, that might be a reason not to. Um, and then the latency and ordering sometimes can cause a problem. So when everything's asynchronous, you've got queues, you've got event buses, you've got message channels, typically, that's maybe going to add a more more latency to your application as opposed to like the best case scenario with HTTP obviously HTTP has got all them fallacies of distributed computing to worry about but if we think about best case scenario you may well get slightly a lot worse latency because you've got everything's asynchronous and you've got all these moving parts and then ordering as well because if you're using you know let's say uh, publish, subscribe, and you're using EventBridge. So you're just publishing events into EventBridge. Well, EventBridge can't guarantee ordering. So then. If you really have strict ordering guarantees in your system, that might potentially move you away from EventBridge architectures, but then services like SQS and SNS have first in first out ordering, so you might just have to, again, think about the integrations, think about the communication, think about the patterns that you want in your system. And then the final reason uh, is around um, consistency. So we've got eventual consistency. We've got strong consistency. And I think I've got quite a good analogy for the two. So let's see how this goes. Um, So if you're not familiar with strong consistency and eventual consistency, strong consistency would be like going into a going into a shop or a supermarket, getting your shopping together, taking some money out your wallet or your purse and paying for that shopping with cash with actual cold hard cash i know it's rare nowadays but cold hard cash <laughs> and at the point you hand over that money you can absolutely guarantee that you no longer have that money at that point in time that transaction is is strongly consistent because the money's gone i look back in my wallet it's gone it's not coming back <laughs> whereas if i was to pay for that shopping with my credit card or my debit card at the point I make the transaction and the terminal says approved, transaction complete, I could go and check my bank statement straight away that and um, it wouldn't be there yet. So a payment of credit card is, is a is a is a theoretical guarantee that at some point in the future that money is going to leave my account, right? And that is eventual consistency. At some point in the future, this thing's going to happen. So when you make things asynchronous you start to move towards eventual consistency. Because if I publish an event, I'm hoping at some point in the future, like let's say it's an e-commerce system, I publish an order confirmed event. At some point in the future, I'm kind of hoping that the delivery service is going to deliver that order. Right? So <laughs> that's something that you might need to think about. And, you know, I've seen, I've spoken to customers in like financial services, for example, where you need to absolutely guarantee that this thing has happened at the point in which you need it to you know, because they, they we're talking money, we're talking finances. Um I once got myself in a really real pickle with event driven architectures actually. Um there was a there was a service have system I worked on and a piece of functionality needed to send an email. Which sounds simple. Um and I was trying to do it in an asynchronous way. So this uh, one service um published an event and then the email service was listening to that event and sending the email. What I didn't consider is that the email service didn't communicate back to the original service that it had sent the emails fast enough, which meant that the the, the originating service sent another event and another event yeah. and another event. <laughs> yeah. And before you know it, I've got a hundred emails sat in my inbox. They're all the same. I'm like, what is going on here? So I actually then refactored that to be http to be synchronous request response. And you know, this is coming back to the start of this question, you know, this is where event-driven architecture is like a tool in the toolkit. It's not that everything must be event driven, everything must be asynchronous or everything must be synchronous in request response. It's understand the requirements of what you need and based on that, pick the right tool for the right job. You might have an e-commerce system where everything's event driven apart from the payment processing because you want that to be synchronous. You want to know when you someone makes a payment that it completes successfully at that moment in time. So. It's just a tool
0: that's things I, I don't know I, I i'd love the situation where somebody made multiple payments to me you know that would be <laughs> nice wouldn't it <laughs> yes <laughs> so james um where can people meet up with you if they want to talk about serverless um
1: so i i've got a couple of speaker engagements coming up Um. very much uk based unfortunately um but i'm going to be speaking at um the serverless, the, the inaugural serverless meetup in Manchester in the north of England. Um, a April, the sometime in April, towards the end of April. Um, and I'm also speaking at DevOps Days Europe on May 23rd, which is about serverless integration patterns, actually. So if any of this has, has piqued your interest, then go and check out that. At go talk Days to Europe the expert.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and so my final question, where can people uh, get in touch with you? I, I know you do a lot of different things. Um, so.
1: Yeah, so like that, if anybody's interested in any of this stuff, then feel please feel free to reach out anytime. that like, I'd love to talk about it. I'm mostly active on Twitter. So on Twitter, my handle is at Plant Power James. That is because I'm vegan and I run ultra marathons. So hence the plant power. Um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn as well. Um, that's another good segue and YouTube. So I do quite a thing, quite a lot of things on YouTube. Shameless plug shoved in right at the end here. <laughs> Hopefully people have listened this far. Um, we should really, you should really do this at the start of podcast episodes, Shouldn't you <laughs> get everyone to put all their handles <laughs> at the start? Um, so yeah, I'm at serverless James on YouTube. Um, I'm sure we can put some of them links in the show notes, Tom. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Reach out anytime, whether it's .NET, whether it's serverless, whether it's event driven architecture, always
0: up for a chat. Great. Well. James, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Likewise. And, and if anybody can tell by the amount of laughs we've had during, during this conversation. Uh, so hopefully you'll come back and, and be on the podcast again and you know find another topic of interest. So. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to. Thanks for having me, Tom. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Basement Programmer podcast. I really appreciate you tuning in. And if you have any feedback, or comments, of course, send me an email. Also, please consider subscribing. It lets me know that you're enjoying this production. I'm looking forward to you joining me for the next episode of the Basement Programmer Podcast. In the meantime, take care, stay safe, and keep learning.